and the man said, oh, write me a check for $25. And I said, what's that for? He said, well, you just joined the Sports Car Club of America. You showed the competition guy in the local club that you could drive a stick shift, go around the block, accelerate, brake severely, and you got your novice license. I've had two uh, fashion shows of ladies' clothes I designed. I've written two books. I built a racetrack, which had to be repaved twice. I've been disqualified out of uh, two major races. The Targa Florio has to be it. Yes, it's a race, but you're on a regular road and you can go as fast as you want. And there's nothing coming the other way. It was just wonderful. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882. Hello and welcome back to the latest episode of the Chubb Interviews. I'm Jodie Kidd. So here we are again. It's wonderful to be back for another Chubb interview. I really hope you're having a fabulous time now that we're all allowed to get out and about a little bit more. Thank you so much for all your fantastic feedback about the series. If you hadn't had a chance to listen to all the Chubb interviews, why not check out all of our episodes? In this series, we talk to fellow classic car lovers, exploring the personal stories of the people who inhabit this wonderful world. And my guest today is no exception. He's a racer, a collector, a general car obsessive. He's one of the legendary characters in this wonderful business. It's Tolly Aratunov. Tolly, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a, a really a great pleasure. I just hope I can do something interesting here. You have a wonderful story with your love of cars, and I can't wait for all our listeners to listen to your story, as am I. Before we talk about some of the amazing things that you have done, I often ask my guests about their big moment when they first set their eyes on a car, when you just got hooked and you got obsessed. Was there a big moment in your childhood where you saw a car that ignited this, or was there someone particular who turned you onto cars? Well, my mother and father were wondering whether I was going to say mama or dada first, and my first word was car. <laughs> I do remember before we bought our wonderful house at Beverly Hills that Vincent Price then bought and found a secret room in, which would have been great fun for me. We stayed at the Beverly Hills Hotel. My nurse and I were walking across one of those big six-road intersections that are 50 yards across, and I remember I heard the sporty noise and a red roadster with a windscreen down and a man wearing a flat cap. Now, this is, we're talking about late 1939. Might have been an SS100. I don't know if the windscreens fold down on those, but I remember thinking, that's special. He came along and he, they had, you know, the slight drainage dips. And he went, through the dips and off down uh, Rodeo or whatever it was, uh, Cannon Drive. I can still see it. It was just that little glimpse, and you just saw that red car, and you went, right, that's it. I want to be that person. And then my brother, 17 years and four days older, was going to college at University of Southern California. And apparently in those days, at least in his fraternity or whatever, three or four people besides my brother had Lincoln Zephyr coupes. Now, my sister, even who's three years younger than he, had a red Lincoln Zephyr convertible. So I remember they would pull up and park for a party or something. And I'd go down and look at these things. And occasionally someone would have to bond it up. And there was that wonderful flathead 12 cylinder. I'd get in and push knobs and once I hit a starter button and the thing leaped forward two feet, and luckily it was three <laughs> feet from the wall. But anyway, that's how it sort of started. 
my story, which I think the listeners are sick and tired because I bring it up every time, but it was my grandmother and my grandmother had an E-type. Oh. And I remember as a little girl and I just saw her drive in, you know, and I would have been tiny, tiny at the time, but I just, it's like imprinted in my mind, just this beautiful long bonnet and this, you know, this image of this car. So I kind of get it. It's just this little glimpse and that's it. You've fallen in love. I want to talk a little bit more about your life. Where do you think you got this insatiable drive from? I honestly don't know. I just uh, like to do things. I've had two uh, fashion shows of ladies' clothes I designed. I've written two books. I built a racetrack, which had to be repaved twice. I've been disqualified out of uh, two major races. And then uh, I met my stepson. And he is Robert David Sheehan III, known as Trace. His life, it's incredible the things he's done and places he's gone so keeps me humble how do you go from building these bespoke amazing cars to designing a women's wear collection because my history is is modeling right and then i went into cars so i'm i'm very because normally i haven't met someone that designs clothes and races cars it's quite lovely that i've heard you say that well the two loveliest things in the world are women and cars <laughs> I'm quite serious, and I was friends with a model in Nashville, Tennessee, and I said, you know, I had some designs. She said, well, I know a seamstress that's incredibly talented and unbelievably cheap. You know, we're talking, again, over 50 years ago. So I drew up these designs, and I shopped around and got fabric, wonderful, weird fabric, and frankly, I'm very pleased with what I did. How brilliant. And I mean, you've had such an interesting and varied life. You've done so many races. You've done a load of track racing and road racing. And you did it in such a cool era as well. You probably met some true greats in motorsports. Was there one person that you think that really stood out? Well, it's hard to beat Sterling Moss. We were at the Targa Florio in 1963. But Sterling was at Ed and Sicily with the BBC film crew going to all the races, the, the tracks where he had, had run before his accident in Goodwood Easter Monday. We were together for, and I mean in the same hotel, and drinking and carrying on for about a week. Incredibly charming man. So Sterling said, well, you have a Flaminia Zagato. I've never driven one. Could we go out first? Of course, you know. So I got in the passenger seat, and it's at night. And of course, in Sicily, and there's a black top road, women wearing black, walking by black donkeys. And uh, off we go, and the headlights were American, weren't very good. And Sterling, and it was a low-seated car, and Sterling's driving, winding it up through the gears on this road with occasional pedestrians, over or under the wheel. This is it's very nice. And as we're charging along, and now we're into third gear, and I realize up ahead is a humpback bridge. 60, 70 feet on the other side is an almost 90-degree right turn. And I remember thinking, you know, in the future, they'll say, totally are a tune-off. Wasn't he that guy that was killed in Sicily with Sterling Moss, kind of like Ed Nelson and Marquis de Portago and the Millie? I mean, it just went through my mind. And so we launched off the bridge, and Sterling's still chatting away, and he does something. I swear the car turned in midair, and he landed. And so 25 years later, I mentioned that to him, and he said, yes, I'd forgotten about that bridge, too. That's why I was talking so fast, that I was slightly concerned. Oh, my goodness. But, I mean, you couldn't be in safer hands. The legend of Mila Milia. The Mila Milia was also something when I believe you went on a family holiday to Italy, and that was also something that really ignited your love of classic cars because you saw the Mila Milia. We stumbled on it. We came up to a road, and the carabinieri said, I'm sorry, you can't cross. So why? So the Mila Milia. Oh, I heard about that. Somebody goes, oh, it was wonderful. <laughs> you know, it's a thousand miles long. You can take a friend. The food is better. And I actually have movies somewhere, three minutes and 10 seconds of cars going by and including Portago. We were eight miles up the road from where he was killed. Did you ever get to race in it? 
No, not the actual race. We've done the uh, historic two or three times. Other people, I've met Brian Redmond's been a great friend. In fact, we put on a rally about 20 years ago, the Rally of New Mexico, and Brian and Marion drove the luggage van. In his Ireland, drove my Morgan in the first Palm Springs vintage race, and I sold him the Aston that crops up. It's up again for sale. It was the one that I had sold him in sort of in pieces ages and ages ago, as I call it, my Aston. It's, you know, because when I see this Bertone Aston owned by Ennis Ireland, I said, that that's the one. You know, we ran the Targa Florio Spa and the Nürburgring on consecutive weekends, driving this absolutely stock launcher from one race to another with the Fiat uh, station wagon service vehicle. And then we had tried to enter Le Mans in 63, and they didn't know who we were. So since we were the only Americans racing in Europe, Marquis de Rosa, Pietro Potino of the Targa, and Jacques Finance of uh, Le Mans. Uh, Finance, we would, oh, we have four openings in Le Mans because of cars that can't make it, but there's no way we can get you in. I'm sorry. And I said, well, that's all right. And so about this time, Count Lorani said, I've seen you, you, you drive rather well. Why don't you come stay at my house on Lake Como and I'll get you a ride in the Monza Formula Junior Grand Prix. And at the same time, Bill Gavin sits down and says, look, I've been kind of pushy. I hope you don't mind. I went to launch you. And they said, they'll do whatever your car needs for $50. For a 10% fee, I can get you starting money and all expenses at all these minor races in Europe at the time, which were all, you know, everything was kind of showroom stock. And I said, I'm having too much fun. I better go home. I used to wake myself up, like I said, every six months kicking and screaming, but I, the attacks come much less frequently now. The head of Monza said, you have to come race and you've raced at Daytona. We have a proper mathematical banking at Monza. None of that straight line, 31 degree thing. Right? And I said, oh, thank you very much, but I guess I'll just go back to Oklahoma. No, seriously. So you didn't do it. What I did do with a friend at having a breakfast at the Nassau Speed Week, which was, again, a, a marvelous encounter of all sorts of people just having fun with cars. And my late friend Brian Crow and I patented, and you can look it up, variable valve timing for internal combustion engines. We patented every possible thing that moves in valve train, moving in any degree of motion. And, of course, nothing happened until the patent expired, and now every car in the world has variable valve timing. I cannot believe it. I was just about to say, if you've got hold of those still, <laughs> you've got to be here. It exists, but it's gone. Oh, my goodness. But the foresight of actually sitting there and doing it. <laughs> I, I think I got this probably from my father, who was an inventor. In fact, he never worked for anyone. When he was in college, his professor worked for him. He was an electrical engineer, was always going to meet with Nikolai Tesla, and never did. I wish they had, because who knows what would happen. Oh, and my father, again, is an incredible man that I could go on for hours about him. And... Uh, when, when he died 55 miles away, he appeared in my room and gave me kind of a hug and called me brother. And I saw other things went on. So uh, believe me, there's something after this life. Really? So he passed away, but you saw like his spirit? At the, at the very moment he did, yes. You've had such a, a, an amazing and fascinating life, but you've also had some very difficult times. And you, you also suffered, a, you know, quite a horrific injury um, in an accident. But... This wasn't anything to do with racing, was it? Would you mind telling us a bit about it? Well, I was on my way to uh, the Sports Car Club of America National Convention. Uh, we had a 40-mile-an-hour crosswind. It was like a sandstorm, actually. It wasn't, it, everything was so frozen. And for an hour, I'd been hearing that the road was closed at mile 33 westbound on Interstate 40, close to the New Mexico line in the Texas Panhandle. And so I'd get on the CB and I'd say, is there an accident? Is it weather? Because they have, in that area, they have... Uh, big gates they put down and say, you know, you have to get off here because the road is closed because nothing. So 
eventually I, I get in close and I slow down and I can see a flashing strobe up ahead and it's just past a big truck area, parking it with everybody, solid trucks all idling. I thought, well, I think I can get through, but I don't want to be one of these four-wheelers, drives into something and tangles up somebody's cable or whatever. So I parked behind the rearmost truck trailer right up against the guardrail with my flashers on, put on my jacket, my deerstalker. Of course, when you when you drive a Morgan, you have to have a deerstalker. Got out, looked up the road. Of course, you're always going to look up the road. Nothing coming, although it was, it was a bend over a, a slight rise. And I started walking right next to the right-hand trailer because that's where the wind was coming from. And the truck coming along, he never had his CB on and locked up his brakes. The two trucks that were trying to hold down traffic for the tow truck that was ahead of them, pulling a guy out of a ditch, they had narrowed it down deliberately, tapered to one lane. This truck took the mirrors off both of those trucks and also his own mirror. When he hit me, he was doing 41 and dragged me for about 50 yards. And I was pinned under one of the wheels with what was left of my leg. If it hadn't been so cold, I would have bled to death. But the artery in my leg was torn directly across, not a bologna slice, as they say. If you slice it at an angle, it'll never stop bleeding. And the blood froze. And then someone who could have been an angel, I don't know, I'm not trying to get too freaky here, showed up, took my belt off, and made a tourniquet out of it. And no one knows who that was. Yeah, I don't remember anything of it. Doctor saying, we can't save your knee. I asked David Piper, another friend I see you know, once a year or so, I said, how can you race that Ferrari minus a leg? And he said, oh, I've still got a knee. It's my right leg, and I have to work the accelerator with my rump, so to speak. I mean, you, you slide your hip forward and back, which doesn't give you very fine control in racing situations. You lost the, below the knee? No, above the knee. Whoa. Well, I mean, that must have been just absolutely terrifying. But, I mean, you know, in moments like that, they do. You just kind of go to somewhere else, don't you? I don't remember anything after I started walking. And the next thing I remember is the hospital. And, you know, they have really delightful drugs. And so people would come to see me and I'd say, you know, one night I thought uh, someone was trying to kill me, but that was some sort of reaction. And I said, the other people, I just want to mention my, our best man at our wedding is Charles Lucas, Titan Cars. I think, I don't know if he's faded away, so to speak, in motorsports history, but he built wonderful cars and uh, a dear, dear friend from long ago. Brian Redmond, as I said, and uh, oh, I got to remark one thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, we were one of several Americans invited to Ferrari's 50th anniversary with my 3Z, which was a Zagato rebody of a short wheelbase California. Wonderful car. The rebody uh, was called one of the 10 ugliest Ferraris by some British magazine. Well, they can say that. I liked it. Typical Brits. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, there's a reason God put all you people on an island. <laughs> Oi, enough of that. So we were having dinner after the presentations and all this, and the waiter comes up to me and says, uh, Gonzalez. And I said, Aratunov. And he said, Froilan Gonzalez. And I said, Anatoly Aratunov. And he thought for a moment and said, Those people there say you are Froilan Gonzalez. <laughs> if I played my cards right, we probably had a free dinner. I'm about, you know, a foot taller than Froilan <laughs> and, and definitely thinner, but. Uh, Anyway, I should be complimented or insulted. Oh my goodness, how amazing. Get up to 33% discount on Chubb Multicar Insurance. Go to chubb.com forward slash the interviews for more information. So can we go on to now some of the cars that you've owned? I think one of your first one was a Lincoln, wasn't it? But this wasn't any normal Lincoln by all words. I believe you made just a few modifications. Yes, I, I have to tell you, this is to give you an idea of uh, 
my family are wonderful people. My first car was a 1951 Chevy Bel Air automatic with 105 throbbing horsepower. And uh, from uh, college to my home, about 50 miles, and there were one 10 miles straight and there was little traffic. And so it would touch 100. I don't know what it actually was doing. It was time for me to get another car, which was very nice. I was going out the door and my mother said, you know, you're in college, you're going to be going to another school, you need a better car. And I stumbled upon in the dealership a 120 Jag Coupe. Ooh. I got in it and it was like, look at this car because it's just wonderful. I mean, it's it's got wood and carpet and yet the gauges aren't stylized like american cars they're just real gauges mm -hmm. now this will give you an idea we we just sold the house in california which i could go on for an hour an incredible house and built on a hillside spanish colonial and my mother said well dear if we still had our house in california we'd get you that car but in bartlesville oklahoma if you go zooming around in a jaguar people would talk so how about a lincoln and poor me, right? You hear the <laughs> violins in the background. So I got the Lincoln, and I didn't realize you could order what was called the export suspension. I wish I had, but that was the ones that won the uh, Pan American Road Race three years in a row, the saloon class. But I put a supercharger on it, a, a Chet Herbert roller tappet cam, and Ma Mallory Mag Spark Ignition had octagon alcohol injection, a Marvel overhead inverse oiler, exhaust headers, of course, and then I put a Continental kit on the back. And I did something that I have never seen anyone else do. As the extension comes out from the body, it comes out about, oh, I don't know, maybe a foot. Then it drops down a few inches and then goes back to the bumper. I found some, looks like Brooklyn's exhaust outlets, and I put them in horizontally on that step. So the exhaust actually came out of the fan-shaped thing above, and it never clouded the bumper or anything. Then I also had this, really smart, had the uh, convertible top, the entire center section all the way back, done in clear plastic, which made it an oven. Oh my goodness. It was a fun car and got down the road pretty well. Where did the going to actually owning the Lincoln to modifying it, to changing it? Did you work with an engineer? Did you work with a garage? Did you, how did, or you just literally did it yourself? You no, know, you look in Hot Rod Magazine and there are kits for such things like this. I mean, and so I'd uh, order the kit and take it down to the, uh, Lincoln Garage and say, uh, put this on on the car. All the pieces are here. And in a day, they called back and said, wow, it's, it's on and it really goes. Amazing. How brilliant. And then I suppose then, since you haven't really stopped adapting your cars, I can't believe this, but you actually went as far as to build your own car. And it was something called, do I say this right? A, a Lapan Agile? Agile, yes. It's uh, from the story, uh, Picasso to Lapin Agile in the nightclub in Paris. And because it was so unwieldy that uh, the late, uh, pardon me, Leon Mandel, editor of Auto Week and journalist extraordinaire, named it. I've also built another car. I, had, I did not build this myself. My nephew-in-law, Alf Gebhardt, who, along with Mark Scherer, won the class at the Daytona 24 Hours in a, a BMW M1. Oh, lovely car. 35, 40 years ago. And he was a BMW dealer and a mechanic and actually was like a second or third string BMW factory driver. He's a very good driver. My latest, you probably don't know what a uh, 1949 Chevrolet fleet line looks like. No, 100 feet away, if you squint, it has almost the exact profile of a Bentley Continental. So I got a Bentley grill and he put it on the front of the car and we renamed it, and it's called the Straightly Incontinental. And uh, <laughs> I was planning on taking it to a Bentley Drivers Club and just annoying everybody. I mean, it, I'm sure it, that would have. <laughs> Is that something that you've just done recently? Yes, it's finished about six months ago. Okay, you're going to have to send us a picture so we can show everyone. 
what drove you to wanting to build your own car? For a long time, I used to design little things, certainly not beautiful cars, but just simple cars. I drove, for example, in, in the early 60s, I raced, but I also drove a Lotus 7 America on the street. Mm. I had a TC, in fact, that I bought in England. I think it was 150 pounds. I like fundamental cars for going places this, that, and the other. And I thought, well, let's see, take a 120-inch wheelbase car with 20-inch tall wheels, narrow tires, and then the straight-eight flathead Chrysler engine and a fabric body on the Le Panagia. You can change it in five minutes, different colors. Put it together, and it's, it was done in early 2000, and I've never driven it. And it's now in a museum. My first vintage car, I opened Automobiles of Italy in 1969. I was a Ferrari dealer. We had, in fact, everything but Fiat and Alfa because they were taken. So we had... Uh, three brand new uh, that I had specced out myself at the factory, De Tommaso Mangustas. We had a couple of Esos. We had Seattle Springs. We had Lanchas. You had one of the first Ferrari dealerships in Oklahoma. You had a dealership for Ford, for BMW, for Volvo. Mazda, Saab, Sterling. We were the first Honda dealership in Oklahoma. I was uh, sorting my mail and a man came in and knocked on the door and said, would you like to sell Honda cars? And I knew the quality of the bikes were incredible. And I said, well, sure. And he said, well, great, because nobody else in town wants to, because we were this little dealership, you know, with, I, I forget how many square feet it was. We did have a chassis dynamometer, and I had also air-conditioned the shop, and nobody in town had done that, because happy oh. mechanics are good mechanics. And, you know, cold air sinks to the bottom, so you don't have to worry about, you know. And uh, so it's, I was very pleased with my... Uh, my setup. I bet you had a lot, a lot of people coming in. Did you kind of enjoy? I mean, that's a lot of dealerships. Did you enjoy that kind of part of your life? It was fun meeting people occasionally and talking to them about what they were looking for in a car and so forth, and uh, my preferences. And it was a very nice thing to do. I mean, I did enjoy meeting people. Yeah, it's a very social thing. And I think when you buy a car, it's also very, very personal. You really get to see people in a different way because, you know, they're opening up. A lot of people have saved up a huge amount of money to buy their dream car or whatever. And it's it's a very emotional, personal thing. So I totally get that. I understand. You get a connection. I must add, having bought the, the one Cooper MG and then found another one, and then another, and then people started showing up. A man pulled in with Alloy Pegaso Spider, minus the carburetors, and uh, $2,500. And the Cooper MGs, every, everything was $2,500 in those days, admittedly after <laughs> inflation. I bought the original Lola GT. Al Francis, who was Sterling Moss's mechanic, uh, saw it in the back of Eric Broadley's garden and said, could I have that to build it? You know, would you like to sell it? So take it away. So he was with Count Volpe and Serenissima, along with uh, ZF Gearbox, and it was in the uh, Serenissima shop, and I saw it with Pete Coltrin in Modena, and said, uh, what do you want for that? And they said, $2,500. And I said, okay, and you want it? So anyway, I eventually sold it to Alf, but everything, people would drop by and- 2500 Right, and then I, I had both Le Mans Pipers, which were about $4,000. They were just old cars. Now, Ferraris were expensive, even back then, old Ferraris. Having cars and selling them on and being, you know, a dealer. Is there one car that you wish you never sold that you still kept hold of? Oh, I don't know. Take out a piece of paper and number from whatever. Uh, I had the uh, <laughs> uh, the three liter Abarth hill climb car, the V8. We actually raced in FIA races with a 2000 SP Abarth. And we're kind of a, a Barth Zagato family. We've had uh, about seven Zagato-bodied cars in the family. And I'd even, after the 84 Millimilia, when Morgan 
had started using Fiat engines briefly when Ford wouldn't build a longitudinal engine for a car. I went by Zagato, where we had also gone, my niece and I, and she had picked up her uh, Quattro Rotti Zagato, which uh, she wishes she hadn't sold. I commissioned, so to speak, a Fiat Abarth Zagato Morgan, and we spent three hours with sketches and everything. And then, even though I'd won the national championship in a Morgan, not realizing that a Morgan was just pretty much a body after all, Peter Morgan was offended that I wanted to buy a chassis to put a Zagato body on. And instead of, as someone said five <laughs> years later, why didn't you just buy a used one? <laughs> Never thought of that. I was so shocked that he didn't want to have a Fiat Abarth Zagato Morgan running around that I just dropped a project. At, at the races at Hallett, we had vintage races. And uh, when we had the uh, IMSA races, Paul Newman showed up and uh, drove. Oh, wow charming guy that I had met also at the national championship races. You know, he was a championship driver. He had the best equipment, but by golly, you know, you have to be good even with the best equipment. He was talented. Yes. Tell me more about the whole racing side, because we've dipped in a bit. It sounds like you've raced all over the world. Well, I bought a Porsche Carrera Speedster. The only thing my mother ever did wrong was talk me into selling it when I had a little engine problem with it. I had a two liter Alpha. She said, you have the Alpha, you have the Studebaker, Hawk, etc." And bought the car. And the man said, oh, write me a check for $25. And I said, what's that for? He said, well, you just joined the Sports Car Club of America. Oh, wow. I said, oh, okay. So I went to the meeting and they said, well, there's a race here and a race there. And in those days, you showed the competition guy in the local club that you could drive a stick shift, go around the block, accelerate, brake severely, and you got your novice license. That was the first year you had to have a roll bar, no flame-proof clothing, and a seat belt only. So I'd drive the car to races and race it and drive it back. And then I got a the Lotus 7 America, which was just a winner. I had another accident in when I was uh, 21 when the brakes failed on my supercharged Studebaker Hawk, which was 350 cubic inch Packard engine that I took the supercharger off the Lincoln and put on top of this. And with skinny tires... If you really punched it, I went to a drag race. I actually twisted the axles. So the seatbelt broke my back. Steering wheel hub knocked out a bunch of my teeth. So I was afraid. I mean, I had a long run before I hit anything. Otherwise, it would have been deadly. Funny racing. I love corners, but straights scared me. And that's interesting because normally in the US, you kind of like the straights a bit more. How brilliant. And then you went on to race all over Europe. Tell us more about that. 1963. I just thought, there are these interesting races in Europe. And... Uh, I ordered a Flaminia Zagato for Sebring, and it came in. I have a couple of cars, a slight sidebar. It came in. It was supposed to be in 10 days earlier on a boat in New York, and it came in the actual day before Sebring practice. Now, in those days, again, it was FIA, no roll bar, et cetera. And my friend who was a chief starter, when I told him this a year or two later, he said, oh, good grief, you could have driven the car down. We would have let you practice. You know, I'm sure the PA system would have said, and now arriving too late for practice and qualifying, but starting at the back end of the, you know, at the end of the field is totally hard to know from the launch of Flaminia Zagato. That, that's how wonderfully laid back it was when it was a sport instead of a business that happened to have, have something to do with, with automobiles. So from there, I had entered the Targa Florio and Spa and the Nürburgring, took a car on the boat like you could in those wonderful days, drive on, drive off. My friends flew in, picked up the Fiat, Drove to Sicily, show up at the signing in, and they say, uh, what? I said, yeah, we sent entrance. We've got no entry from America. And I thought, I've come all this way here. They said, we're here to race, no not to keep people from racing. Go have Guido paint Noventato on your car, and because you come from America, we won't charge you an entry fee. <laughs> I was, love this it. This was a championship, right? A sports car championship race. Wow. Anyway, eventually we got some points for Lancia and got a lovely marble and alabaster trophy from Lancia. 
for thanks for winning us some points in the sports car championship. You talk to people nowadays and they can't fathom the idea that you used to take your car that you used to drive to work in on the weekend up to a racetrack and race, you know, the same car. People are just like, what? <laughs> but that was just totally normal. Right. In the Targa, there was a British man with a DB2 drop head and he would drive down apparently from England every year and run the race and drive back. The first time in the Targa Florio, when you come around on actual race day over the little hump in the right-hand bend and you see there is the main street of Sherda ahead of you with people sitting on the curbs and everything. And I'm supposed to drive down there wide open. It, it's a real act of will to keep your keep your foot on the floor in the car, even as you might say as sluggish as a Flaminia Segato, because you know that somebody's going to shoot you or you're, you're going to be arrested. But uh, they're out there applauding the carabinieri or waving you on, you know, like the millimilia, the historic used to be. People used to say, why didn't you really get faster cars? And I, I had my chance at 1962 Louisiana Grand Prix as a Formula Libre race the week after Sebring. And uh, I was introduced to Carol Shelby, who wanted to borrow at the most $20,000 to put Ford engines in ACs. And I said, you know, he's such a con man. And uh, nah, I don't think I'll go along with that. So <gasps> I had, no. And then as a kind of a flip back from that in 1968, I went by Holman Moody you know, the uh, stock car builders. And also they had, they were responsible for the Le Mans cars. And I went in just to look and there on the rack behind like a parts counter were all the Le Mans GT 40s and the Holman Moody purple honker, the uh, Can-Am car. And I said, are those for sale? And he said, everything in, in here is for sale, mister. Uh, now we haven't laid a wrench on them since they came, you know, since they drove off the track at Le Mans. And I said, well, what do you want for them? He said, well, I think we're asking 12,000, but if you want to buy two, we'll probably make, you could have them both for 22. And I thought, well, I have to go all the way back to Oklahoma, get a trailer, and come all the way back. And do I want a Ford GT? Not that much. So, <laughs> are you serious? Oh my but, goodness! But I have, I have, like I said, I have picked a couple of neat cars: the, the Ferrari 3Z, and then I have the only Bristol 407 Zagato that was ever made. I met Tony Crook on the stand in '68 and ordered a 410 Saloon, which just wonderful car. It's still here in town, actually. Uh, but I got the 407. I saw it in a little mention in Autosport and wrote Bristol back in 62 or whatever. And they said, well, no, we the quality of Zagato's quality has fallen off, so we're not going to build any. You know, they were going to put them up against the DB4 Aston. And then when the super dollar came out in 1986 and the pound was like a dollar 14. And I said, I think I'll put an ad. Oh, I called Mr. Crook and he said, of course, I know who owns the car, but I can't tell you, you know, proper British manners. So I put an ad in Autosport and my golly, in a month, I got a letter from the friend of Ever Halbert and he had the car, I hadn't planned on selling it, but if I wanted to send him $45,000, which was about twice what I thought, and I thought I better do it because if I play a game and start negotiating, then, you know, Cecil down the road will say, Ever, I didn't know you were selling the car, I'll buy it. Yeah, jump in. So I just said, cool, and it was just a lovely car. Plus, as I said, being rare. <laughs> one. What else have you got in your garage? Well, let's see. I have two bizarre, wonderful rebodies by a deceased Romanian sculptor, one on an MGA chassis called the, the Savoy, which looks like a car out of Flash Gordon. And then I have another, another one that he did on a Fiat 124 chassis, which sort of looks like a wood bonnet chopped and channeled shortened Le Mans Bentley. Uh, then I have the Le Panagile is gone. I have the Cooper that I, I can't get FISA papers on because the representative won't take my word that John Cooper at the 84 Millie saw it and said, 
it says Cooper. Is it? I said, well, you know, you ought to know. And he said, well, take the bonnet off. And I did. And I said, there's a weird, it had a, just an English Ford engine in it. And I said, a strange motor mount here. And he said, hmm, what's the serial number? And I said, we've had the car all apart. It doesn't have a number on it anywhere. And he said, yep, we built it. <gasps> it was originally a Vauxhall, the Cooper Vauxhall. And I keep thinking someday I ought to find, uh, you know, a 1954 Vauxhall engine just to put in whatever. But we run that in the Coppa d'Italia. The historic rallies 20 years ago were just, uh, 30 years ago, <laughs> were just such wonderful, wonderful things. And then, oh, I also have... I have a Cunningham that's only American bodied, and it turns out it was the last American chassis or the last Cunningham chassis ever built. The body was more or less finished about 1981. I have a Flavia Zagato, an Appia Zagato. I had a Flaminia Zagato, the one that we raced in Europe that I sold a couple of years ago at a decent price because of its uh, provenance and uh, things like that. Amazing. No, it's wonderful. It's absolutely really eclectic. I was listening to the, to the, who did you say was the designer that did the one that looked like Flash Gordon? I've never heard of him. Well, he's, I said, deceased at age 55. His name was Michael Pistol, P-I-S-T-O-L. And he had something like Pistol Automotive Design Group. And uh, the second car, I, I still have a Street Morgan, by the way, that a 4-4 Series 5 competition that we've driven to California and back twice. I mean, you know, they're, they're cars. These people that are so hesitant to take their cars out. I, the second one I bought, the Fiat that I tracked down, we'll give you the long story on that, but I bought it. It never occurred to me, it had been commissioned by a lady, that it was for a female body. So I get the car and isn't it lovely? And I try, of course, my one leg, you know, being mechanistic, doesn't bend all those different. I could barely get in. Once I was in, I couldn't really work the pedals. So I said, well, I'll just be a passenger. Well, I can't, could barely get at the passenger side. Anyway, so it's, uh, you know, we might mess with it a little bit. It'd be fun to be able to drive it. It's for your wife. Well, she can't drive a stick. I tried to teach her in a turbocharged RX-7, and she would alternately stall it and then leave 80 feet of tire marks, and she's a fantastic driver. Maybe start something simpler. <laughs> oh, wow. Incredible. Okay, so now this is a kind of like a, a question that I so want to know. So out of all of this wonderful experience of, of racing around the world and different tracks, whether it's circuit or whether it's road racing um, or rallying, favorite track and favorite race? Well, I should say my own track, Hallett Motor Racing Circuit, because I built it. But actually, it's something somebody else did, the Targa Florio has to be it. Yes, it's a race, but what the part of your mind says, look, you're on a regular road and you can go as fast as you want. And there's nothing coming the other way. It was just wonderful. I'm surprised from friends of mine a few years ago. You know, there's always the, the question of if you could just have one car. Well, I'm fairly along in life, so the rest of my life. But I ordered Lamborghini Miura number seven and got number 22. And I drove it and I was one of the few people to race. In fact, I got a wristwatch for the best letter in Octane magazine when they had an article about the only man to race a, a Miura. And I sent pictures in and said, nope, I did over here. In two laps, the brakes were gone. They, they were. I was about to say, it didn't catch on fire? No, no, they just, <laughs> just went away. When I was walking through the Lamborghini with, with Senor Lamborghini, I looked and there was a Zagato, da da da, Lamborghini. And I said, I never heard of it. And he said, ah, oh, porquera, miserere, what? Like that. And my Karen said, oh, if I'd only been with you, I would have said, because we were, we were driving a Yenko Stinger, a modified uh, Corvair at the time. And they were, everybody was crawling all over it. Uh, Mr. Lamborghini had taken it out of the dealership in Milan because he hated it so much. 
It's now one of the, uh, Bill Pope has a museum in Scottsdale, Arizona, and it's, he won the, a concours in Japan with it. Uh, before he bought it, it won the Hetlu Concours. It uh, won a prize at the last Pebble Beach. We've had the Bristol and Pebble twice uh, during Zagato years, just not not for judging because it's a, a pretty much a street car. So I've, I've always called that my Lamborghini Zagato. But if I'd one car you may know about, just the most wonderful creation, it's a Rolls Royce of all things. It's a one-off. And it's known in the Rolls-Royce Owners Club, and I forget the first part of the license, but it's something, something, two, four. And it sold at auction a few years ago. It is the Cary Grant of cars. It looks almost like a Bucciali. It's a, it's a close-coupled coupe. It's low, but not menacing. It's, power, it's, it's just exquisite. Looking for a car insurance quote? Go to chubb.com forward slash the interviews for more information. Oh, this has just been absolutely wonderful. So, Tolly, in this podcast series, we're running a special theme and it's called One Piece at a Time, where we're asking our guests to select one prized possession. And at the end of the series, we'll have this beautiful collection. It could be anything, a bit of a car, a photograph, an artifact, or it could just be a piece that has a special memory or meaning to you. So I want to ask you, Tolly, what would your piece be? I think when I won the national championship in 1981, and then I was awarded the President's Cup, and I got a letter from Ronald Reagan. No. Congratulating me, yes. And I'm sure it's an auto pen signed letter, but the point is, in those days, the President's Cup always got a letter from the President. As far as one single artifact, I think that's what would be it. We would love to see it. Would you be able to take a picture of it and email it to us? I, I think so. If I could maybe set on it the little tiny vase from uh, Lancia. Yes. Can we see the two of those, please? That would just be wonderful. If I can find it. It's <laughs> <laughs> that prize then. <laughs> oh, Tolly, I just want to say thank you. I mean, I could listen to you all day some incredible stories and and i'm sure we've only touched the surface but i'm sure everyone listening was just being taken away with your your incredible love and history for cars and i just want to thank you so much for sharing a bit of your life with us well i thank you very much for inviting me and i will make sure when i'm over in oklahoma again i can come and say hello and i want to peek in your garage and i want to go around your racetrack absolutely both directions <laughs> We've got a deal. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you. And to the listeners of this podcast, we would love it if you could share your own one piece at a time. Pictures on Instagram or Facebook, or you can send it on email. On Facebook or Instagram, just search for Chubb, that's C-H-U-B-B, collect a car, or for email, Classic cars at chub.com or browse chub.com forward slash the interviews. So thank you so much for joining me today for the latest episode of the Chubb interview series brought to you by Chubb who share our passion for classic cars. There'll be another episode very soon. To receive every episode as it's released, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please review and spread the word. And don't forget to email us your stories about your most loved classics. I'm Jodie Kidd. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>